0: Hi everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, we will start in a little bit. Hi Kirko. Come up. I haven't talked with you in a while. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, you know what I'm saying? I finished up training. So I've been, uh, trying to acclimate back to civilian life. You know what I'm saying?
0: Oh, oh what, what did you be... do? Training?
1: Yeah, I was in a uh, uh, military training, like oh, since wow. I met you until like about a month ago.
0: Oh, wow. That's yeah
1: something how, how did and, it go it went well you know what i'm saying um i got what i needed to get so now i'm like uh back you know where i live and trying to get all my certifications set so i can start making adult money you know what i'm saying <laughs> that's kind of actually why i haven't been like around too because um a lot of it was like exams and stuff i had to study for and then since i've been back you know, getting to hang around the family and doing all this uh paperwork stuff like that. So I've just been kinda busy. So that's why I haven't been like in a lot of rooms.
0: But I'm back. I'm glad. Well, um I guess congratulations to passing all the stuff and doing that. It must have been hard, so chapeau (laughs) i can't imagine it must be really hard hi frank how are you today nice seeing you hi brian hi eric uh nice seeing you all here
2: hey Katrina. hi grippko uh it's been a while yeah but uh uh, looking forward to this talk it's a green material and uh, I'm looking at the slides. I'm trying to, you know, get a preview. So how how are things going, uh, Katrina and uh all the friends here.
0: Good, good. Thank you. Um busy but good. So uh yeah. And apparently Kicker was very busy and uh yeah, so we've all been You were here was it last? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes, you yes. were here last. I was, I was here. Yeah. In the yeah. That was good. So, yeah. Hi, everyone. And uh, nice seeing everyone. If you think this is interesting, uh, feel free to share the room. Uh, it will be really interesting. I shared uh, some further reading. Jonathan thank you. Well you always do that. <laughs> That's on it. So, um some open access paper if people want to check it out that Matthew shared with me earlier today. Hi Matthew, how are you? Welcome. So, to unmute so we can hear you, it's all the way on the bottom right.
3: Sorry, yeah. Perfect. Uh thank you. <laughs> uh it's very nice to be here. Can you hear yep, me now? Yeah, we
0: can hear you. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Oh, no worries. I chat the papers and on top is the the presentation. If you want to check it out, if it works well, everyone, before we start, feel free to do so. Hi, Bill. I haven't seen you in a while. How are you, Bill? Come on. I'm sorry. I <laughs> <Matthew> was just... <laughs>
3: people in the audience oh no worries so do you have a regular uh regular crew that always shows up for this or um how does it work this is my first time at the science society
0: yeah we have um so brian like Kyoko, he went through he can tell you (laughs) so he was he wasn't here for a little bit but usually yeah he would come and and Frank um comes really a lot of times and cool. helps moderate. And then in the audience you see Eric and Brian comes all the time and whenever he misses rooms, he apologizes. He doesn't need <laughs> to go. Oh, but and Bill, he was away for a little bit because he was traveling and not having reliable internet. Jonathan, he is always nice and supportive. Yeah, so um Very nice. Yeah, we have more people that uh that come back it depends on the time of the day
3: yes of course Uh,
0: if it's you know more people from europe um it's more in the earlier rooms and right
3: right right i guess we're missing them right now
0: yeah night
3: owls maybe but
0: uh... (laughs) but they can listen to the replay and the cool thing yeah to do it on clubhouse is that they will see the room the exact same way we are seeing it like they can click to the chat and ah, cool on the presentation just they cannot actively participate but other than that they see everyone here they you know they can click the links and everything so very nice yeah i'm glad you did this you did the count and came here it's really nice of you
3: yeah, no, I'm happy. It's it's always nice to you know to talk about your science and uh, to reach a new community is always always kind of fun. And um, I always, I mean, I, I really encourage people to ask questions because uh, maybe you think of something that we haven't quite thought of yet, and uh, or see it in a different way. I think um, that's kind of the the great thing about about science and especially our science, which is very cross disciplinary. Um, that you know, different perspectives always. Um, are always welcome and, and helpful uh, for us to kind of think about our problems.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's really the the cool thing about being on Clubhouse is people from so many different knowledge backgrounds that mm-hmm. uh, the the conversations can get really interesting um if you know people are open to it so yeah i agree that's what kind of made me become addicted <laughs> to <class. laughs> was these really interesting conversations that you don't have in conferences yeah yeah so sometimes yeah. it takes a little bit of time to get um, um started conversations like this you know sometimes in the beginning people are kind of you know like um scared of talking when mm-hmm. it's objects that they are not comfortable in but i think we passed that yeah we all very bold.
3: yeah well that's good <laughs> so I that's
0: think.
4: fantastic
3: yeah well i mean i'm open so feel free also as i'm speaking to shout out something i'll try to keep an eye on the uh the comments um in case uh there's some questions that come up um during the talk. So um, yeah, I definitely am open to also being interrupted.
0: Great. And I think it's time to start people will continue to come in. But we start with the introduction and then we'll um, we'll go from there. So um, yeah, welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you matthew and uh before we start let me uh, give a short introduction so people know um so yeah just people know you know something more about you Mm -hmm. and um then uh usually we ask like a couple of interview questions if that's okay with you and then it's time for your really cool um research absolutely Perfect. So uh, Professor Matthew Harrington, he's an associate professor um, and Canada research chair in uh, Green Chemistry in the Department of Chemistry at the McGill University. And he's also the co-director of the McGill Institute of Advanced Materials. And uh, he did his PhD uh, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in the lab of Herbert Weite, and I hope I'm saying his name mm-hmm. right. And he was then. Um, he then did a postdoctoral um, fall- fellowship, a um, uh, hum- Humboldt postdoctoral fellowship at the Max Planck Institute. Of colloids and interfaces in the Department of Biomaterials, where he then was a research group leader until 2007, and um, he his research is about understanding uh, biochemical structure-property relationships and um, from the f- function and the formation of biological materials and applying those to design principles for the development and sustainable production of bioinspired materials, which is really interesting. And I think it's a really great uh, research area to be in. So welcome. And as I said, we usually ask like a couple of interview questions so people get to know you as a scientist a little bit better. Sure. So was it, always something you wanted to do like become a scientist uh yeah or was it just something you know you read the book you had a great teacher or you just lit was just by chance you know i think Mm. it's really interesting for us to learn about the different career
3: yeah no that's that's a good question uh it's funny i was i was at my sister's wedding last weekend and and you know um saw a bunch of my relatives who I haven't seen in a while. And my aunt who used to babysit me as a kid was uh, talking about how as a kid, I I never shut up. I never stopped asking questions, uh, even as like a a really, really young, young guy, Um, you know, just why, why, why all the time wanting to know everything. And uh, so I think it was always in me to just you know, need to know how things worked. Um, and um, in particular, I was always interested really in biology. I I remember also my at my uh, my Nana's house, they had this book on um, uh, the human body and human biology, a college textbook, which I was just fascinated with as a kid. So I, I think I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. Um, but in in this particular field of bio inspired materials, kind of I guess happened by chance. And um, it's a very interdisciplinary field that that kind of requires background in biology and chemistry and material science and engineering and all these uh, aspects. And I don't know, I feel like somehow I was led here through the different uh, topics that I became interested in. Um, But once I got into the field, it was a completely natural fit. And uh, yeah, so I can say as a kid, I always definitely wanted to be, um, or I don't know, I was meant somehow to be a scientist, uh, but to actually make it into this field also felt very natural as well.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. um, That uh, it was always something you wanted to do and kind of your passion. So, I, you know, we keep hearing that, and it's really, and I get feedback from audience that are not in in scientific fields, that it's very inspiring for mm. them to hear that, and they feel like very positive, like they have more hope than people <laughs> working on like real humanity problems that are doing that out of that reason so i always appreciate hearing those stories and you kind of answered already the second question about you know how you went in that field so
5: how
0: how did you know this you know i wrote you about the this paper but um you were also presenting um other projects but how did was it hard to get like funding did people you know sometimes we have people that come here and say yeah people thought i'm crazy (laughs) or they say oh this was so easy for this project i got money right away or it was like uh, some mistake happened and they thought it was a mistake result and then it became a project? Like, is there some story like that? Maybe?
1: Behind? Uh, yeah,
3: they're, they're, I mean, for, for the mistletoe. So I mean, uh, during my PhD, I was working really on um, the muscle byssus which I'll talk about in a bit, which is a underwater adhesive that that marine mussels use to attach onto rocks at the, at the seashore. And uh, that was in Santa Barbara, where we had the ocean. Uh, And then I moved to Germany, and I was lucky enough to work at the Max Planck Institute, which, for those who don't know, is a um, kind of a publicly funded, uh, funded, government-funded research institute that uh, is all around Germany, so they they have different topics. So I was at the Department of Biomaterials, uh, and this is really kind of like a wonderland for a scientist in the sense that um, it's really... Uh, so it's not a university, you don't have the teaching requirements, but you're able to just really focus on your research. And um, they're, you know, very well funded. So as a group leader there, I could kind of have some freedom to do, de- you know, I had my own funding that I, I I got some funding to work on specific projects. But the, the whole goal of the Max Planck is fundamental research. And so they allow you to kind of take risks it allows you to be able to do that kind of research that if you're constantly um you know trying to get funding for this or that you might say well you know this isn't really safe i probably shouldn't i probably should go with something safer um but being in this environment right i had my safe projects i had my funded projects but i had a little extra money um that i could i could work on some risky projects and so the mistletoe when it started was kind of a risky project and it does have a pretty kind of funny story um so i was trying to learn german when i was there and i started watching this show which uh, Katarina you might know it's called zendung mit der Maus it's like the german equivalent of sesame (laughs) street for for (laughs) north americans right And I was watching the show. And again, I was just watching it to try to improve my German. And um, I had never seen mistletoe uh, because it's a—it's kind of a European species until I'd I'd gone to Europe. So I kind of knew what it was. And I knew it was these things that, that grew on the trees in the winter that were green all year long while the trees lost their leaves. And I didn't know much about it and watching the show though i I saw that it was um these berries were a food that birds ate in the winter and then they would for lack of a better word they'd poop out the seeds but when the when the seeds came out they would turn into these long fibers like really long sticky fibers that that would then wrap around the branches of the tree that the birds sitting on and would start um you know growing uh, the seeds actually it's a parasite so it grows into the branches of the tree which is was just wild so i'm watching the show and i'm like thinking to myself oh my gosh i have to study this like how does that work and i looked up immediately any paper i could find on the topic and there was there was basically about two or three papers only that had had started to look into how the fiber forms how the adhesive works um so i was hooked on that and then i was like all right how do i get some of this and it was Kind of close to um, Christmas time and at the Christmas markets they had all these uh, you could go and just buy the mistletoe so I I picked some up um, and we were just kind of at home playing around with it and um, all of a sudden I'm in my you know I'm in my kitchen playing with these berries and pulling these fibers and and hatching my plan to make this my project Uh, and that was probably I don't know six you know probably six years ago and um it's just been so much fun um you know working on that and and actually getting to work with some amazing students uh on this project as well so it it was one of those things that was kind of just a it was a whim uh while while i was trying to learn german uh and i i just was totally hooked on it um and it has you'll see when i start talking about the other systems there are a lot of similarities between um, you know, the different systems I'm talking about. So mistletoe, but also muscles. And then this other weird creature called a, a velvet worm that I'll talk about as well a little later.
0: That's a very cool story. And you know, when I moved as a kid, um, after second grade to Germany, uh, though, you know, I learned German mostly with those shows and yeah. with this, um, cassettes that had the stories, Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And yep, like I yeah. mostly learned German through those things. But <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah,
3: saying. it's great actually. That show is really fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah, so thank you for giving us this really cool uh, background story. And yeah, um, it the stage is yours for your presentation. And uh, yeah, we are all looking forward to learn more. Thank you.
3: Great, fantastic, yeah. So um, again, uh, Katrina, thank you so much for the invitation uh, to be here with you tonight. And uh, thank you to all the people who who showed up and uh, took a little bit out of their time to hear about our science. Um, And um, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, as it might be clear now, our area of research is is what's known as bio-inspired materials biomimetic materials um and that sort of thing so if you're if you're following along uh on the uh the slides that i kind of uploaded this first slide is really um it's a paper that came out uh that kind of asks the question like what can we learn from nature what can we learn from from um from natural materials uh and and how can we learn from that and i've unlined a line there in the um, abstract that says uh, a thorough analysis of structure function, uh, function relationships in natural tissues must precede the engineering of new bio-inspired materials, and I, I think that's a, a good a good line that kind of says what we're all about. So, the premise here is that um, through evolution, um, nature has come up with a lot of uh, good solutions for common engineering problems. Right? Um, they've kind of through evolution have stumbled upon, um, you know, materials that actually have properties that can outperform in certain ways, uh, any of the best engineered composites or polymers or adhesives or whatever. Um, And so um, that's because they've just, it's just billions of years of evolution have kind of stumbled upon these, these solutions to problems. And the other benefit that, that comes with nature, and, and this is one of the things that really motivates our group, um, is that these materials are inherently biofriendly. They're inherently, uh, recyclable and biodegradable, and they're inherently therefore sustainable. So some of the materials I'm going to talk about today are what you would call biopolymers. They're the biological equivalent of a plastic, uh, like a plastic fiber. Or something like that uh, or or a you know a, a polymer glue and inherent and in, in these because they're you know they're bio based they're based on proteins or they're based on um, sugar chains like cellulose they're gonna be more sustainable right and so what we think is that we can learn from these systems by um, if we take kind of a chemists point of view Uh, we can treat these instead of saying like, oh, that's a biological material. We say, okay, that is a, a biopolymer. That's like a plastic. Um, and I'm going to try to reverse engineer that. I'm going to try to figure out how it works. I'm going to try to figure out why this works the way it does. Uh, and then what we do is we get what we call design principles. Um, so, you know, fundamental, um, physical and chemical principles of, of that describe how this works and when we do that we can um, then go to the lab bench and and because these are chemical and physical principles we can copy that and we can try to make new polymers and and new plastics or new adhesives so um, if i go to the second slide uh, that that i have on there uh, that's kind of our approach what we do is we start with the biology we find an interesting model system that has an interesting property Um, Typically, we aim towards materials that are outside of the body that are made and function outside of the body. Um, You can imagine something like spider silk, right? Spider silk is non-living. It's a fiber that's produced outside of the body of the spider. Um, So it's, it's, you know, there's no living cells. We don't have to worry about all the complication that comes with with living cells. This is basically just a plastic, a plastic-like material. Um, and if you look at spider silk as an example, spider silk is, I'll argue, better than any natural um, or any synthetic polymer that humans have come up with. It's, it's tougher than Kevlar, and Kevlar is what you use to make a bulletproof vest, right? In terms of toughness, it's three times tougher, um, and it's got really excellent properties. Um, but it's made under bio-friendly conditions. And so the, the materials that we study, which are the muscle byssus, um, the mistletoe viscin fibers that I mentioned, and the velvet worm slime, these are all, let's say, kind of similar to spider silk in the sense that they're um, they're made from biomolecules like proteins and and polysaccharides. Um, they function outside of the body. They're fabricated in uh, very quickly outside of the body um and because of that we can study them you know like i said they're they're kind of like a plastic that we're going to try to reverse engineer Uh, and so that's our approach we really take this uh, multi-scale scientific um, approach where we use methods from biochemistry from chemistry from material science to distill the and elucidate um, these design principles by looking across length scales from the biomolecular level up to the higher order organization. Um, And once we've kind of distilled these principles down to their very basic chemical and physical um, nature, that's when we can say, okay, now we know how this works. Now we can go to the lab and we can try to do this synthetically and see if we can recreate or mimic some of these properties. Um, and yeah, we've been doing that for quite a long time. I've been working on the muscle business, um, for almost 20 years. Um, the mistletoe fibers and the velvet worm slime are are more recent, say, um, six years that we've been working on them. But even in that short time, we've got some really cool insights and, um, that's what I'll kind of tell you a little bit about today. And, And with these insights, either our group or with our collaborators, we. Like I said, we try to mimic this synthetically, um, to make materials that have what we call stimuli responsive properties. So they, they can change their properties depending on the local environment, uh, materials that are self healing, um, that can be damaged and then, uh, spontaneously recover to their native state. um, and, and so on. So, um, that's kind of like the overview of our approach. And so, uh, with the rest of the time I have, I just wanted to kind of briefly go through uh, these systems. Um, and Matthew. if any of them? Oh, sorry.
2: Yeah, Matthew, quickly. So, uh, the uh, sorry uh, in, uh, interrupt, to interrupt. The, uh, no problem. Quick, uh, clarification: the you start. You mentioned uh, the uh, spider silk as well. So, yep. but uh, the slides number two is uh, that you work on.
3: between the two. Uh, our... Sorry, I, lo- I think I lost the audio for a minute there.
0: Yeah, Frank, you're breaking up in between.
2: Oh, oops, sorry. So how's, how do I sound now? Yeah. Good. OK, so so yeah, so I, I was wondering the, uh, the difference and the uh, similarity between spider silk and the the muscle that because you mentioned spider oh, yeah, sure. at the very yeah. beginning so uh, so it seems that the one is uh, much longer uh, it's actually quite de- intriguing to to learn that the muscle actually has this uh, uh you know uh silk like uh yeah uh, well, yeah, yeah. so
3: that's that's a great question um and uh you know spider silk is one of those it's kind of the the poster child for for bio-inspired um or biological polymer materials right it's the, it's been studied for the longest and probably the most is known about it um muscle byssus um is is a different material for sure um it has very different um properties it is also quite tough um, but you have to remember this is also functioning in the ocean it's functioning in a marine environment um, so it has a different set of um um let's say, uh, needs, the, the, the function of this actually is completely the, you know, spider silk is evolved to to capture insects which are flying, it needs to basically um, dissipate the energy, the kinetic energy of the flying insect so it needs to be quite tough and just um, and damping. Um, this also needs to be designed to be damping because what the business does is it when a cra- crashing wave comes um, that those fibers are the only thing that keeps that muscle from being ripped off the rocks. And these waves are, are really uh, crashing with incredible, um, you know, speed and, and acceleration. That And then the muscle is experiencing this, right? So they also need to be incredibly tough. So these fibers, when you look at the numbers in terms of the mechanical properties, they're also incredibly um, tough. They're as tough as Kevlar. So they're about three times less tough than um than spider silk but they have other properties that are really interesting for example um, well i might as well go to the the next slide so that's that's slide three um they actually have uh, a property that uh really is what what got a lot of interest of scientists early on they are capable of underwater adhesion okay so imagine that um you're trying to glue or tape onto a surface that's wet, or even just uh, you know maybe it has uh, it's a humid day and there's some so there's some you know humidity that's accumulated on your surface and you want to put some tape on there. You're gonna have a really hard time um, because water will create a stronger interaction with that surface, and your your tape uh, it, or your glue can't displace the water. Right? It's it's so that's gonna inhibit you from being able to um to glue on uh onto that surface um yet this organism this muscle has evolved a strategy a chemical strategy to be able to glue underwater so that's one big difference uh between you know spider silk i mean there is a there are adhesives involved with building a spider web but they're not te- typically functioning in a wet environment like this so um, a lot of people got really interested in understanding that underwater adhesive. and that was um, the lab that I worked in for my PhD was one of the really big labs that did that. And um, what's really interesting there is that um, they, uh, they did in, back in the, the 80s and, and the 90s, they basically learned that okay, this is made of protein and now we have to extract, the proteins that make up this, it glue this adhesive, uh, and, and they, they extracted them and then they learned that the chemistry of these proteins was very different from, from most proteins. Um, the animal was actually modifying the chemistry of the, of the glue proteins after they'd already been made in a very particular way. And what they were doing is they were adding this, um, this chemical functional group that we call dopa. So it's called dihydroxyphenylalanine. We call it dopa. And this is a very, um, you know, if you know anything about proteins, you know, well, there's 20 amino acids, there's 20 standard amino acids. So the, the muscle was actually saying, well, those 20 aren't working for us. We need this other one because it has to do this special thing. And so they create, they make an enzyme that modifies that protein and adds on this, dopa. And in right when I was getting started with my PhD, they just made this really big discovery that the dopa was actually what allows the uh, the glue to stick on wet surfaces. In fact, it was the dopa that is that is so good at sticking on surfaces that it just like basically knocks the water out of the way um, and kind of takes over. And so that discovery was kind of where, where I was starting with, um, and also then they found DOPA in all, all other places in the, uh, in the Bissell threads, not only at the adhesive surface, but also DOPA turned out to be really good at forming these special types of crosslinks, which were, were based on metals. And, you know, there was all these really neat discoveries around this. So then the, the engineers, um, kind of figured this out, uh, or they, they were reading these papers and they started saying, well, can we use Dopa because basically Dopa, the, 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 um, the chemical group on Dopa is what's called a catechol and yeah, these are readily readily available and we can, it's actually Dopa is, it has a similar structure to the dopamine that's in your, uh, the, the, neurotransmitter that it's in your brain, right? It's, it's a very common and, and, um, you know, relatively simple chemical structure. And so, um, what, what the engineers, the chemical engineers and, and, uh, Material scientists started doing. They took this chemistry and they said, "Okay, can we make underwater adhesives? Can we make coatings? Can we make this?" And it turns out that um, by using this, just this chemistry, this chemical group, you can totally do that. Um, and so, that, for example, there's there's a group out in um, UC Berkeley, a uh, group of Phil Messersmith, that are developing um, surgical adhesives that are based on this chemistry, this very simple chemistry that was discovered in the muscle. And um, they're using these, uh, they're, I think they're in clinical stages now, um, but they're using them um, in kind of prenatal surgeries where you can't use uh, sutures. Um, they use this um, to kind of seal the amniotic sac um, after the surgery, which reduces the, uh, the likelihood of um, a premature birth. So um, again, this was, you know, kind of a The the original research was just kind of a fundamental investigation, you know, that wasn't the intention uh, leading into this to just say, okay, can we make, can we make a surgical adhesive was really fundamental research out of interest, out of curiosity to say, you know, how the hell does the muscle do this? And then, uh, you know, it was a lot of biochemistry. It was a lot of material science. It was a lot of, uh, you know, general basic chemistry, physical chemistry um and they kind of you know made this uh made this big discovery i don't know if that kind of answers your question it was kind of a roundabout way to get here but uh that's definitely one of the big differences that um uh that we see with um muscles versus uh spiders um well, thanks
2: sir. that's thorough and uh i guess altopa is the yeah uh, the main yeah interesting. Well, it, okay
3: it, great It is. Yeah, it is uh, very important. There, there are other aspects to this. I mean, I I could, you know, I don't have all, I I, I was told, I have about 10 minutes per per material, but I I could easily talk about the business, uh, you know, for two or three hours, but I won't do that (laughs) because I probably have to go to bed at some point. But um, the other thing we're really interested in um, with the muscle business, I will say is um, the way that it's formed, because again, uh, like I said, the fiber itself um, has properties that are as good as Kevlar, but Kevlar um, is a material that's produced, you know, from, from um, petroleum based precursors. Um, It needs to be uh, dissolved in almost pure sulfuric acid. Uh, um, To get it to dissolve, you have to heat it degrees Celsius. So it's, it's not very, it's not a very uh, sustainable process. Um, but yet these, these Bissell thread fibers are produced, um, in just minutes as a secretion by the muscle, um, kind of similar to the way spider silk is formed. Um, and the way that the muscle does this is that it prepackages um, all of the precursors. So these are the proteins in these tiny little vesicles. So these are kind of small little bags. <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, bags or sacks of um, of these proteins. But the proteins, obviously, if, if they're gonna f- um, form a material, um, they have to be a liquid form, right? They have to be able to flow and coalesce and, and be formed into this material of a certain shape. Um, and so what happens is that the muscle is storing them in this liquid phase and then they get secreted And then they have to undergo this really fast liquid to solid transition. And that's what we've been studying like in the last five years. That's been really cool to us. And we think that this understanding this could be, um, could provide some information about how to make, um, plastics more sustainable, uh, or in a more sustainable way. And so the one trick that the muscle, I'll just tell one of the tricks the muscle uses, at least for this Kevlar type part. Um, which is this fibrous core, it actually stores the proteins in what's called a liquid crystal phase. Uh you probably know liquid crystals uh from maybe from your television, L C D, uh LC display, uh, liquid crystal display is what it is. Um, these are also liquid crystals like that. And what does that mean? A liquid crystal is something um, sounds fancy, it's it's kind of um kind of simple in the sense that it's a it's a phase of matter that is somewhere between a solid, a crystalline solid, and a liquid. Crystalline solid means that all the molecules or atoms in your material are organized in a very periodic way in the material. So the the building blocks, whatever they are, the molecules, in this case proteins, are organized, right? So they have some organization already. But they also are liquid in the sense that they have fluid-like properties they flow and So if you have these two properties together, what does it allow you to do? It allows you to kind of pre-organize your building blocks um, So they already have this structural order uh, In the fluid phase and then as you transition them into a solid it means you can go really quickly uh, to trigger a, a transition into a solid that has a lot of structure that has a lot of structural organization and it's very well known from from plastics and other materials that the more structural organization you have, uh, typically with with these kind of plastics, the better the properties are going to be. So this is a kind of way that the muscle hedges its bets uh, in order to really quickly create um, a very highly organized and and uh, material that has amazing properties. Um, so. That's kind of what what we um, have been getting up to with the muscle. I'm uh, gonna quickly switch gears to our mistletoe uh, work if, if that's okay. Um, uh, and so I told you a little bit about the mistletoe story when I was I was talking about the motivate or why I got into this research. And so if you if you are following the slides, you can go to slide five and you can actually see, A picture of a bird that's uh, that's passing some of these berries out uh, out its back end and you can actually see if you look really closely there's these um, string uh, uh, it's basically a string of of these seeds it's like a a pearl necklace almost um, where where the uh, the seeds are all attached to one another um, on a single fiber now the crazy thing about this fiber it comes from this tiny little tissue surrounding the um, the seed, which is called the vician cell bundle. This thing is five millimeters long. Okay, it's like half a centimeter long. You can take this tissue with your with your bare hands. You can take the vician cell bundle and you can just pull your arms apart as far as they go, and you'll make a fiber that long. Okay, and um, it's sticky, but as it dries, it it loses its tack. But you can you can draw a, f- a fiber from this tissue that's five millimeters long. you can make a fiber that's two meters long. And these fibers, once they dry, also have an incredible stiffness. Um, they're uh, let me think three or four times stiffer than nylon okay nylon what you you know what you do uh, what you go fishing with your fishing line it's going to be nylon. Um, these are stiffer than that. Uh, They're flexible, they have amazing properties, but um, if it happens to be humid, they will then immediately pull up humidity from the atmosphere and they'll become a lot softer and they can flow again and they can be pulled. So it's a really interesting material because it, um, it can be formed into fibers. It actually is quite adhesive and it sticks to almost any surface. Uh, including metals and plastics and glass and wood Uh, it sticks to human skin Um, it sticks to cartilage Uh, but because um, because of the nature of of this material um, you can you know draw it into these incredibly uh, stiff fibers as well which is different than most glues Um, they're not that you wouldn't get that sort of behavior in them so that was where I got really interested. I said, what's going on here? So we, we studied some of the kind of the fundamental structure of this. Um, and based on some, some of the previous studies, we knew that this was going to be based on cellulose. Cellulose is the most abundant biopolymer on the planet. It's what makes up trees and all plants. It's found in certain types of bacteria. Uh, they can produce it. Um certain type of fungi, um, even certain an, uh, one type of animal called a tunicate can can produce uh, cellulose. So, you know, it's it's a pretty common um, building block in nature. Um, and you know, if you if you've probably heard of uh, cellulose as well, but didn't realize that if you are trying to add more fiber to your diet, that's cellulose, right? It's this plant material that our bodies don't digest. Um, but it's also a really amazing uh, building block for materials because what is cellulose? It's these long sugar chains. It's just really, really long chains of of simple sugars that then can form into these small crystallites, these tiny little crystals. We're talking about nanometer length scales and very high aspect ratio. So that means they have a a small diameter and a long length, um, and they're incredibly stiff. So when you add them into a material, um, it you know gives them mechanical stability. So that's where you know the the mechanical integrity of a tree comes from a lot uh, is is the cellulose that's that's in there. So these these thiscin um, fibers are actually fifty percent cellulose, okay? And so that's that's interesting because that tells us, well, that's probably where the stiffness comes from. But what's not normal is this processability. The fact that you can just take this thing um, and stretch it and into into a fiber, uh, or also, as you can see in in the, the slide, you can also make films out of these. If you make a fiber, stretch it a little bit, and then pull in a third direction, all of a sudden you form these films, these freestanding films. Um, so it's got an amazing process- processability, but it's all based on humidity. There's no, like, I'm not heating this thing up, I'm not. Um, not really doing anything to it, except if I keep the, if I keep it humid, it's very pliable and can be pulled into, you know, different shapes. Um, and, but if I dry it, then it becomes very stiff and, um, you know, like it has great properties, right? So, um, we were interested, well, how the, how the heck does this work? Um, and so, yeah, we, we're now, uh, we've explored the structural factors behind that. Um, but in the in the paper in in the paper that I that I uploaded or that I, I sent to Katerina, um, you can kind of read a bit more about that if you're interested. Um, but what we're what we're interested in is uh, now is maybe how we can apply this, um, you know, in different different types of applications. Since it is uh, it can be formed into films, uh, it can stick to skin. Uh, in this in this paper, we actually. Um, explored the idea, well, could it be used to kind of seal a wound, um, on the skin and we showed at least on, uh, um, you know, some, they got a, a piece of, um, my student, Neil's got a piece of, uh, pork from the, the butcher that still had the skin on it and he showed that he could seal it. He actually wore a, p- a piece of, you know, a mistletoe on his hand, uh, for, uh, half a week and even when he was washing his hands, it stays on there. Um, but then he could peel it off uh, later on. Um, so we wonder if this could be um, kind of useful for for those sorts of applications. Um, and we're kind of still exploring this and we're exploring um, kind of the chemistry of adhesion at the moment. Um, but yeah so so that's a, I, I find this a, a really interesting system. I think there's a lot of potential there um, but um, we're very we're much earlier uh, in the stage of of our understanding of how, um, how the chemistry works and how, how this process actually works. So, um, if there's, if, if there's any questions on the mistletoe, I'm, I'm happy to answer those or I can, um, I can proceed to just uh, go to the third system that I'd, uh, I'd like to tell you about, but okay. So, um, the last uh, system or the last animal that we're we're currently looking at in my group is called a velvet worm. the The real name uh, is an Onychophoran. Um, they are kind of an ancient species or an ancient group of of animal uh, animals. Uh, they they tend to live in tropical and subtropical environments, kind of in the leaf litter in forests, um, and they are carnivorous. Um, little animals. They actually look kind of like a caterpillar or, um, a cross between a caterpillar or a slug. I had a colleague who saw, saw one of them the other day and and said it looked like a slug, but they're actually really cute. Whereas I don't think a slug is, is quite cute. They called velvet worms because they actually, their skin actually has this kind of velvety texture to it. Um, and, um, they're, they're a really interesting animal for a lot of reasons. So they're, they're really quite ancient. I mean, we're talking about, um, at least 400 million years old, um, in terms of when, you know, when the first, um, things that you could call a velvet worm were around. Um, and there's only about 200 species that are identified, um, on the planet. Uh, we study one that's from Australia, but the, we're we're also going to be starting a project on um, on one from the Barbados, um, and uh, it's a really uh, really interesting creature. So it's interesting for a lot of reasons. One, they give live birth, which is you know it looks like an insect, but it it, it just gives live birth to uh, to little baby on a Um, you know. Um, but the the reason we're interested in it is because it has this really weird hunting strategy. So um, basically, they are able to um, fire a projectile slime out of two appendages on their head known as uh, the, the slime papillae. Talking about it, I can't do it justice. I think what you have to do if you're really interested in this is uh, there is a uh, David, David Edinburgh narrated video of a velvet worm hunting and that will give you everything you need to know. It's kind of a slow-mo, uh, super slow-motion video of, of the, the velvet worm firing its projectile slime. It's a lot of stuff, a lot of goo that comes out of the face of this thing. So why, why did I get interested in this? Um, well, I, I uh, met a guy who came to ga- give a talk at our institute um, who was interested in the ecology and, and, um, you know, life cycle of, of these animals. And I started chatting with him about it. And he said he had a PhD student who was interested to study this slime. And then he told me a little bit more about the slime and I was really hooked. So what happens is that when it, when it shoots the slime out, it's a fluid. Okay. It's a liquid it's stored inside the body as a liquid, and as it leaves the slime papillae, they the, it transitions into this gel-like phase. So it becomes a solid in midair. Uh, it's what we call a viscoelastic solid, but it, it's it's kind of like a, a jelly, silly putty-like material in midair. Then, as it lands on the prey, so the prey being uh, typically other insect or not other insects, but actually insects. Um, when we have them in our, our lab, uh, we, we feed them crickets. Um, they entrap them with the slime and the slime, um, dries and hardens and, and, uh, and captures the, the animal. And so then the, uh, the velvet worm will go and, um, basically just eat the animal or sorry, eat the insect just right there. Um, and so we're interested though, uh, from this, from the perspective of, of looking at this, this, um, slime and saying, okay, here is a fluid that is rapidly transitioning into a solid. And we, we studied the, the, the fibers and the fibers again, have a stiffness that's comparable to nylon. Okay. So what's interesting is that if you, um, if you let the, uh, the velvet worm shoot the slime and you collect it in. A tube, so an Eppendorf tube, um, and you let it sit there um, for just a little bit, it will transition. Uh, As long as it doesn't dry, uh, it'll relax back from that gel state back into the fluid state, right? So it becomes basically a liquid again. Um, And all you have to do is let it just kind of relax for a little bit without without agitating it. But what's really interesting is now that you have the slime outside of the body, you can Uh, use kind of mechanical shear so I just mean uh, you know you stir it up a little bit and then you pull it like if you if you take a um, pair of tweezers and you stir it up and you pull it away you can form those fibers again okay so outside of the body you can form these fibers that means that all of the ingredients that are necessary to form these fibers are in the slime and that means as a biochemist, as a, as a, as a chemist and, and a material scientist, I can use all the tools that I have to investigate uh, how that works. And so that's what we did um, with some slime that, that we got from our collaborator. And um, it's really, really interesting because what we found out was, okay, we can form these fibers, um, which again have uh, you know properties that are comparable, let's say, to nylon, at least in terms of stiffness. We can take that fiber, we just put it in distilled water, or just water, and it will dissolve again, okay? So it's like recyclable just using water, but then we can take that dissolved fiber solution and we can make another fiber. So it's fully recyclable. And so that's when I was like really hooked on this. So we started looking into this and we we made some really interesting discoveries in terms of the composition of the slime Um, in terms of what is actually changing chemically and biochemically um, at the nanoscale and at higher length scales. Um, And, um, you know, it's, again, this one is really based on proteins. Um, So the muscle business also made on proteins. Uh, Mistletoe visin is made of uh, cellulose, Um, but this one is, is, is made of proteins and the proteins are, um, what we would call mechanoresponsive, so that means they respond to mechanical forces uh, so when we shear the slime or when we pull the slime um, the proteins are actually changing their structure they're responding to these mechanical forces they're changing their structure and they're and this is causing them to kind of want to stick together and that's what allows these fibers to form or at least that's what we understand so far Um, but again, I have to say, we're, we're not, we have still have a ton of work to do to figure out how this one is. We, we've got some, you know, constantly getting new results that make us completely turn around our, um, you know, our model and our hypotheses, um, and, and readjust. But for me, that's, you know, I don't find that frustrating. I find that the fun, uh, the fun part of everything is, is kind of having to, uh, think about this a little bit more, more deeply and, and, uh, and, and, you know, look at it more fundamentally, and and try to figure this out. So, um, you know, that's kind of just a brief overview of, of those three systems. I, again, I don't want to take too much of anybody's time. Um, but um, I'm definitely open to to talk further about any of the, the things that you find interesting, um, or, you know, answer other related questions. So, I guess that's it from me now, and and I'll I'll open it up for everyone else.
0: Well, thank you so much for this really interesting um, research you shared with us, and um, it's so cool that you can like completely recycle it so easily. Um, that's so interesting. So you you told us how you came about to, you know while looking into mistletoe so so is that like is like are you planning or to go is there a way to go systematically through like organisms and and figure out what could be useful or is it always like some you know, you could use some algorithm or AI driven or is that you think like this has to be human based, like kind of having more insight, like you said in the beginning.
3: Yeah.
0: A broader range of knowledge.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think, well, you asked like so many, <laughs> so many good and important questions right there. Um, you know, the funny thing is that so much of the work in the field of, of bio-inspired materials is focused on such a small number of materials um and it's almost like history that that has done this i mean people started studying one thing and then a bunch of other people came into it and you know it it, let's put it this way the more that's already understood about the system the easier it is to kind of jump in and, and make kind of deeper discoveries um or more meaningful dis- or more, let's say impactful discoveries where like what you know will, will you know, influence something that's already going on. Whereas when you start with a new system, you're kind of starting from scratch, um, which I like because, you know, basically anything you find out is new. Um, so So there's that aspect of it. To go through it in a systematic way Um, you know, in terms, I guess, of finding new model systems to look at, um, there's so much diversity in nature. I I don't know of a good systematic way. Actually, a lot of the really good work on, on, um, you know, this on the diversity in nature and the types of materials that are produced, it was done in like the 1700s and the 1800s when they were discovering these animals, you know, when we were looking at mistletoe. We're citing papers from like the 1820s. Uh, you know, even back in in the time of the Greeks and Romans, um, you know, there's a, I think we have a citation from Pliny. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of crazy because they that's where like the really you know there was this real interest in just understanding nature for the the sake of understanding nature and for you know documenting um, the the variety and diversity of different creatures on the planet. Uh, now you'd, you'd be hard pressed to, to get like a nice publication out of, of something like that, um, but that wasn't the motivation back then, I guess. Um, so if you actually dig into this old literature, you can make some really uh, interesting um, discoveries which might lead you to, to new model system Um, to a new interesting animal or material Um, and actually I'm I'm um, up for sabbatical next year and that's kind of my goal is to kind of dig through some of this old literature uh, to maybe take a trip to the ocean you know to the beach and and actually just walk along and try to um, try to find some some new new things to focus my my work on I mean, we are starting a new project on sea cucumbers uh, that that we haven't published anything on yet. But this this is also a very interesting uh, animal and, and a very interesting uh, material that they have their outer wall, their outer skin wall. So, I guess to to answer your question, I don't. I think it does take um, you know. There's not a way to automate this, but uh, so it does take some scientists looking. Maybe, in my opinion. Uh, looking a more more deeply. I mean, this is organismal biology now. It's no longer chemistry. It's no longer um, material science. You really got to Look into these old old literature and and try to pick out some Interesting model systems that way that would be at least my thought
0: Yeah, I love that you said that um, because I you know we we scaled research in general but we do all these applied projects, and you have to write it that way for grant, and so, and um, I I don't know. I know from um even Nobel laureates' speech, uh, speeches. Um, they came to like a, a foundation in Portugal to speak like once a month or so. Anyways, most of them said. You know, don't do research that you think will be useful. Just do good research out of yeah. curiosity. And this is happening less and less. I feel like, and it gets also overcrowded. And I, I kind of get like really anxious because we need more innovations, but
5: yeah.
0: where should they come from if we have like a strategy that because we think we're so smart, right? But we sure. are not.
3: Sure. um, No, I I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a, a sad, um, aspect of, of kind of the way current research and publications work that, um, this kind of fundamental research, which is so important that is not driven by a goal of, of some application, uh, right away, because we don't know what benefit we might gain from understanding these systems and this this uh, natural biodiversity more. Uh, We can't say at the outset that if I do this, that it's going to lead to some sort of product in the future. But you never know. And actually, just, I mean, personally, um, the thing that motivates me is really the sense of curiosity to understand these things to to kind of figure out these problems. Um, and I agree with you that it, it is a shame that there's not more uh, funding for these sorts of things. Now in Canada, there is still um, what's called the the discovery grants, um, where it is meant to fund fundamental science. And in Germany, while I was there, you had the, the DFG uh, was often funding um, you know, fundamental science and and research that was an interesting research question didn't necessarily have to have a clear application that was going to come out at the end of it. But it's true that this is getting less and less this sort of funding. And uh, it's often going to health related research. Um, and, you know, other things like that. So, yeah, I would, I, I would join the call to, to say, let's, let's keep funding fundamental research, because Again, in talking about the the muscle business research, this discovery of dopa uh, as a, as a possible for for surgical adhesives that wasn't the intention at the beginning. It was simply just somebody uh, I know, the the my former PhD supervisor Herb Waite, looking at these muscles and saying, "How do they do that? That's that's so crazy." And you know having the tools and and the knowledge of, of how to ask that question and, and try to answer that question
0: yeah i agree and somewhere is the key for probably all the problems we have we just don't you know we just don't know enough so yeah. and we don't know where to look because we don't know even you know we don't know anything so yeah. <laughs> anyways i want to give also others opportunity to speak i will ask maybe if there's time later something but um yeah. Kirko frank um go dr Shah, yeah dr Sha, go ahead yeah first of all thank you so much
6: matthew for sharing your wonderful work with us and uh, my question is kind of thinking about the biomimetic nano platform as well as the for example, when we are thinking about micro related with that also some of the features that we need to get into consideration, for example, uh, thermal effect, and it can be even photothermal effect and some of the heterostructures. I was just wondering, because you just worked on three different uh, kind of things, uh, did you find any, I mean, interesting Things around that
3: during your work or not? So, so you mean um, thermal, photothermal properties of these materials?
6: It can be that one, but my, uh, my question mostly is related to the nano platform and how we can just merge your finding somehow with other things in related with the microorganism, if we want to just produce a new thing.
3: So, do so when you say sorry, I'm, uh, I. You mean uh, microorganisms like, like bacteria? Can or... be
6: microphages specifically.
3: Uh, I see. I see. Um, I, I would say that's probably out of my realm of expertise. Um, although I do have to say, um, in, at least in a lot of the marine organisms that I've uh, that you know the ones I've studied, but also knowing the knowing the the field pretty well a lot of them um do appear to have um antimicrobial like surface chemistry so a lot of them contain halogens so like bromine iodine um and uh chlorine um element in the surface uh, of their material and nowhere else and nobody really understands why they do that and one of the hypotheses out there is that this is uh, related to uh, kind of antimicrobial activity so that that these materials are not degraded uh, right away in their environments. Uh, and also, I can say that the velvet worm slime also create uh, contains very small short proteins in there that, you know have no known function except to possibly be antimicrobial. So, I think, you know, th- there are a lot of, um, you know, obviously the first, uh, antibiotics were discovered, um, produced by, you know, fungal spores. So I think there's also definitely aspects of this it's, you know, coming from a material perspective, it's kind of one of the things that I don't often pay as much attention to, but it's definitely there, uh, I think for, for someone to look into, but yeah, no. Um, I, I have to say I'm not like a real expert in, in that area, but I think there's, there's probably some potential along those lines.
6: Also did uh, did you find any kind of response uh, for the, for example, hypothermic effect or not?
3: Um, not really, but you know what's interesting, um, you know, muscles, we study a, mu- a type of muscle called the blue muscle, uh, middle edulis. It, it lives in... Um, um, you know, it's, it's the one that you, you typically find at restaurants and, and that sort of thing, or at the grocery store. And it lives, uh, in, in the Marine environment, right on the rocks, uh, where the waves are crashing, but there's other types of muscle. I mean, there's so many other types of mussels, And, uh, we actually once studied some, um, threads from mussels that live in the hydrothermal vents. Um, and we were, you know, we never really went far with that study, but we were really interested in, in what does that environment, which is going to be very high pressure, uh, very different temperatures, um, and, you know, being close to a thermal vent, hydrothermal vent where there's probably a lot of, um, um, you know, sulfur in the water and these sorts of things, how that might, might affect the materials. But in terms of um, understanding kind of the, yeah, the, the thermal properties of, of any of these materials, not, not too much um, that, I, that I can think of. Um, but yeah, it, w- it could be an interesting comparative study to think about. Could you look at these organisms that live in very different environments in terms of you know, temperature, pressure, and see how, how they have evolved differently?
6: And amphipathic. Can be another one,
3: yeah. How it works in a liquid
6: service, so thank you so much.
7: Yeah, thank you. I guess I'll, I'll jump in here real quick. Um, Matthew, uh, uh quick question or, or Dr. Harrington, are you for uh, I'm pretty sure you're probably familiar with uh, Dr. Uh, John uh, Wil- Wilkers on yes,
3: of course, yeah,
7: at, at Purdue, right? Are you yeah, guys, yeah, like, yeah.
3: yeah, I know him.
7: You know, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, because I, 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 I was like, as soon as he said muscle <laughs> together. Uh, sorry, I, I missed the
3: question.
0: May Are you cutting out. Um. We we can't hear you. Uh, we didn't hear anything you said.
7: To Doctor Harrington, right?
0: We we didn't hear anything you said, Mayor. But I can, could you repeat?
7: Oh, okay, okay, all right. So I was saying, um, so uh, Dr. Harrison, have you like connected with uh, John Wilkers? Like, are you guys connected? And
3: yeah, yeah. So um, I um, I see him often at at um, at conferences, and actually, it's funny we. We found out that uh, his sister lives on the same street as my parents. Randomly, so I mean, uh, I've definitely connected with him, and we've talked about this uh, quite a lot, um, and um, you know, have have uh, discussed uh, discussed these things. Um, so, on our latest paper on on the the muscle adhesion, he was the one who uh, who wrote the perspective or the kind of the introduction to the paper in the journal. So. Um, we definitely connect, we have never collaborated. Um, and, uh, but it's, I mean, that's pretty normal. Um, when you're, you know, you're in this, in this, uh, sort of field, but he's, he's also doing absolutely fantastic work on, uh, also on adapting some of this, um, um, chemistry to make synthetic polymers. And I know they're doing a lot of really cool work on because uh, actually, I saw him present at the um, adhesion society conference uh, a couple of years ago, and, and they're developing kind of muscle inspired, um, you know, synthetic glues, um, based on on a lot of this chemistry as well. Yeah. So he he's, he's doing fantastic work.
7: Yeah. Yeah, actually, me and him, like, uh, I connected with him, and we and he sent me samples. We were trying to, like, because I have the eyelash extension business, too, right? Ah, cool. So we were, I was trying to use the muscle, uh, basically the polymer there, as a potential adhesive uh, to have a bio, you know, uh, class adhesive instead yeah. of uh, CA, right? But when yes. I got it, but as a polymer, right, the problem was it was, like, it cures ultra-fast. It was, like, boom, as soon as it hits... You know yeah. uh, you know just it's super fast or the curing process needs to be a little slower so but on the uh, like you, you got a mix bag of tech here that sounds very interesting one thing that we do um, uh, in another room is I think it'd be kind of cool to bring your your tech up and then have a session with a bunch of like entrepreneurs and other technologists of how like identifying opportunities for this stuff because like the fibers you're talking about I was like man paint and yeah. bristles and all types of stuff is there sure, you know sure, what I'm yeah, saying yeah sure right i mean i'd like to know more about the adhesion stuff because ultimately it's it's like you know we're looking for an adhesive that is um you know cures a little slower right not instant mm, you know I see. because cause you got to place the lash extension on the lash and stuff ah, right? i see yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But even the fibers you got like what like the fibers you got there i was like wait can we manufacture the fibers and they're sticky you can just place them on there there's some there's a lot of cool stuff i think if you can come you know you know me and Katarina are good friends here i think we can (laughs) if you'd like we can do a room on extracting all the potential opportunities from this and get a bunch of other minds to uh to see what opportunities there are from your tech what do you think of that
3: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, like I, I mean, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of what we're doing is, you know, is fundamental, but, uh, there's definitely the, these possibilities, which we're, we're definitely, um, you know, we're looking into these ideas as well. And, and we're, um, we're interested definitely in, in seeing what can be possible. I think in, uh, you know, from maybe I'm, maybe I'm slightly cautious, but I think from my perspective, I want to understand these new systems, at least I want to understand them, um, a lot more, um, fundamentally before, before I think we can really, really start mimicking these things. But, you know, that was also, um, you know, the case with, with, with the DOPA system early on, you know, they didn't fully understand it. They still don't fully understand it, but they were still able to make um you know synthetic materials that had really interesting properties you know just based on a partial understanding so yeah i i think for sure um that that could be really interesting yeah it's more of a hey where yeah. where, where what can be
0: we... because we have a lot of people sure. oh sure. Yeah, sorry <laughs> so, thank you um frank um joyce david bill dr mm-hmm. heidi go ahead
2: I see Dr. Heidi uh,
8: flashing lights. Yeah, I, I thought I may uh, share my research since 2008 on biomimicry um, in the Congress of uh, Entomology. I had uh, some research, early research in um, biomimicry of termites, the white uh-huh. ants, and how we can actually mimic um, termites' mounds in terms of temperature. So I thought that, um, because you've been asking about the temperature and another mm. uh, application for biomimicry from different angle, uh, which is um, trying to mimic the mounds and actually have the same scale of um, the holes they create in mounds uh, to keep the temperature inside the mounds at 27 degrees all time. And Mm -hmm. there is a building um, in Kenya, East Gate Harari, which is uh, being built with the same structure. So different scaling, of course, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and the water piping as well. So uh, it gives actually two solutions to the water pipes and the canals created by those ecosystem engineers, termites. The other research, which I've been working on as well, medical leeches um, having an anticoagulant um, biological matter, natural, which is anti you know, um, the coagulation of the blood, we use heparin. Uh, and the heparin, mm-hmm. uh, to be synthetic in labs, it's really expensive, really, really expensive.
5: Mm-hmm.
8: However, we have it in nature, in the medical leeches, which is uh, again grow up by uh, in in some areas in Africa by the canals. So those are the two um, areas I've been working on in the last 20 years. So uh, biomimicry, it's really inspiring us to uh, go forward in many solutions um, and in many ways. But I don't know why this science, it's growing very, very, very slow.
3: Mm. However,
8: it has lots of answers for many problems. But um, I can tell that um, there will be a golden era for using all those green, especially talking about the COP 27 and the climate change. There is no way to go around it without having those green solutions around. So I um, this is my share because I would like to learn more and listen to you more. Yeah. Uh, this is Heidi, and I'm done. I'm complete. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's
3: that's that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. That was really cool. have uh, uh,
8: mm-hmm. the question you texted me
0: in the back channel, so
4: please go ahead. Uh, hi, good evening, everybody. Uh, I want. I was. I have uh, two questions, but um, they would be. Correlated, depending how would things would be done and or work. The first one is occurred to me when you mentioned that the velvet worm does life birth, mm-hmm. so immediately brought me to ethical treatment of animals,
5: mm-hmm.
4: right, how this is done, and you know, I mean, you know the concern, and of course you probably have a probably good, very good answer for us. But I think it's important to touch this point. Mm -hmm. And the other one is uh, in terms of um, scale production, is it viable from so many, I mean, are you going to use the animals? Are you going to reproduce them chemically? Or if you are, then how are you going to still clean and sustainable,
3: right? No, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very good question. The
4: architecture interior industry, 90% of what we have to work with, is it harmful for our health Mm -hmm. or to the environment or both? Thank you.
3: Absolutely. No, I think uh, you raise, you raise two good points there. I mean, uh, in terms of, um, of the velvet worm animals, I mean, we, um, you know, I mean, I'm speaking more because uh, we, we don't so much have, have very many in our lab. Um, at the moment, uh, we were mainly using, um, uh, we were getting slime from our, our collaborators uh, in Germany who, who had gone for uh, collection. Well, they, they go on collection trips and they come back with maybe um, 10 to 20 specimens uh, that they, they raise in the lab. Uh, and, um, you are able to collect the slime from these animals without harming them. Um, so basically all you do is, uh, you would, uh, you know, pick them up with a kind of soft, flexible pair of tweezers, aim their head into an Eppendorf tube. And then when their, their, um, antenna or the, the two, yeah, antenna on the top of their head, touch the inside of the tube, they'll think, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, predator or prey and they'll they'll spray the slime into the tube and then you put them back uh in in the tank or in the um uh terrarium so in terms of um ethical treatment it's i would say they're treated quite okay like uh, like any type of um pet <laughs> not that they're a pet but uh you know they they are are fed and so on and um where you know, you don't have to kill them to take the slime or to get the slime, which we, we use to investigate. So from that perspective, um, I think it's okay. Do I think we're going to start an industry of uh, materials that are based on um, any of these animals? Not really, uh, especially not the velvet worm. I mean, it's simply you can't upscale it. We're not. And, and I, I want to make this very clear. We're not um, proposing that we're going to use velvet worm slime to make materials to make a recyclable material that's obviously not sustainable Um, but what i'm what i was trying to say earlier is that if we can extract fundamental chemical physical principles of how these work we can try to mimic this and why is that why could that be sustainable i don't know if it will be sustainable why could it be sustainable it's Possibly because these materials, their chemistry allows them um, to, you know, if we really understand how this works, um, we understand why, you know, you can activate this material uh, or activate the slime proteins and cause them to turn into a solid. And then if we put them in water that they, they dissociate and form back into a solution, if we can understand that. And that's what my hope is, then we can, you know, recreate this in a different system. It's also possible to express proteins recombinantly using bacteria, and that can be upscaled. So you can basically have a large fermenter, um, and you can produce large amounts, gram quantities of, at least at this point, gram to kilogram quantities of these proteins, which then can be processed into materials that's what's currently happening right now with spider silk so artificial spider silk um, you know there's there's several companies around the world that are um, upscaling or attempting to upscale production of these proteins using bacteria and then using those proteins to um, make fibers and these fibers to make fabrics and these fabrics to make clothing Um, so you know there's or at least at one point there was a uh a dress in the Museum of Modern Art that was made from artificial spider silk produced by this this one company. Is it sustainable yet? Is it cost effective yet? Not really, um, but it doesn't mean it won't be in the future. And I think it is um, possibly a, a good avenue for for you know getting around the fact that well proteins are actually probably better for making some of these materials than petroleum based uh, molecules um, and you know, bacteria are, are at least able to make larger amounts than the animals themselves. Um, and more ethically, I would say. So I agree with, I agree with what you're saying. And, and this is a constant question that, you know, comes up is like, um, can we upscale this? Can, you know, and at this point, um, no, I don't think we can with a lot of these systems, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to to understand how we might do that at least that's my my thoughts on that
0: yeah thank you uh i don't know if you know neri oxman from mit
3: i definitely know of her yeah oh yeah i, I don't know her uh, personally
0: I, yeah i had a meeting with her um, she's starting to open a company in new york city and uh, she was talking about it's it's really interesting um uh yeah I think you guys should work together it's uh <laughs> thing work because yeah. you know i don't you probably know of her work then yeah I do. she's always looking for like new material, and now um she's looking. I think for the company also to um she she stopped at m i t to like open the company to do
3: like stuff right
0: right yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe you guys should meet one day I know Kirko and Frank, you had questions uh please go ahead
2: oh yes uh yeah thanks so these uh um very intrigued interesting research I would like to understand uh, ask uh, about the um the muscle um the uh, the slide number uh, is sorry the uh, page page three so um, how many, uh, oh page page four sorry so so to, to, as you mentioned that this one major advantage of this uh, uh, muscle food that. The, the the biopolymer is that it actually can replace water. It works as glue underwater. So Mm -hmm. it's different from the the other two. So in this, uh, I would like to understand a a, a little bit more uh, of the mechanisms. So there's a a few agents here. There's the core, there's the, the, you know, like a -hmm. a liquid crystal as you you mentioned. So the cross-linking uh, is it by hydrogen bonding or, and oh, with yeah, that lead one coating, is that a, yeah. a is a kind of a, a what what role does it play? And also, for as I understood, I did a, some a search just uh, a moment ago that the the way the the fibers stick on the rock, for example, the 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 literature explain this by first somehow wetting the surface with its own. Maybe the green ones. I don't know. I mean, then, oh, could you go into a little bit more yeah, how the force uh, works here? Yeah. Thank you.
3: Yeah. So it's it's complicated, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you asked a lot of really good questions. I'll I'll try to unpack it. Um, so this this image on on page four um, is kind of a schematic of of uh, you know how we see this process, kind of making an analogy to a. Um, Typical polymer production process. So it's kind of a schematic uh, view of how this process works. And so the Bissell thread actually has three parts. It has the plaque, which is the adhesive, the glue. We call it the plaque. It has the core, which is this fiber that I talked about earlier, which is the um, the Kevlar-like uh, fiber that we have. It's actually um, based on collagen-like proteins, which is you know collagen is a protein that makes up uh, your, you know, a lot of your body actually tendon, and uh, it's in your bones, it's in your skin, and then finally the cuticle is an outer protective coating. It's an abrasion resistant yet extensible coating, and so these three parts um, are what make up the thread and what combine together to give it its great properties. Each of these parts is formed from a different group of proteins. And each of these groups of proteins are stored in different types of storage vesicles. Again, these are the little bags filled with fluid proteins. And so during the formation process, these contents of these um, vesicles are secreted into this very narrow uh, groove that's inside the thread-forming organ, the bystus-forming organ called the foot. And so they, what they're doing is they're getting secreted out there and then they're just kind of self-assembling into this structure in a matter of minutes. And again, you're going from a liquid phase suddenly into a solid phase. So how does that work? Well, that is where the cross-linking comes in. And you asked the question, is it hydrogen bonding? Well, there might be some hydrogen bonding there, but what makes the muscle business really special and it's cross-linking is that it's based on a very special type of um, unusual type of crosslink called uh, metal coordination crosslinking. So again, I don't know how how much everybody's background in, in chemistry or or you know um, you know basic m- m bonds are, but typically you have these types of bonds called covalent bonds and then non covalent bonds. Covalent bonds are like um, Essentially permanent bonds between two types of atoms like a carbon carbon bond or a carbon hydrogen bond um, These have uh, high strength, but also um, Once they break they're kind of not reforming. They're not dynamic bonds as we would say Then there's non covalent bonds like hydrogen bonds fender um, Waals forces um, electrostatic interactions these are bonds that under the at least under the marine environment, uh, temperature and pH and everything, they're going to be a lot weaker and what we call transient. So they're constantly like breaking and reforming like hydrogen bonds. That's what holds water together. And these are constantly just breaking and reforming and gives it the kind of liquid nature of water, right? Metal coordination bonds are really funny because they sit at this place right in between a covalent bond and a non covalent bond. Um, they're really strong they're way way stronger than a, um, a hydrogen bond yet they're transient they're reversible. So if you break a metal coordination bond um, and this can be um, this can be based also on these um, dopa residues or on another amino acid called histidine um, basically what's happening there is each um, so, oxygen atoms that are on the dopa for example they have lone pair electrons that means they have a couple of free electrons that are sitting uh, there on the oxygen and they donate both of those electrons into the metal um ion okay again i don't know how where everybody's chemistry is but basically what it's doing is it's it's donating both the the electrons to form this this type of bond whereas typically when you have a Typical covalent bond one electron is coming from each um, Atom so this makes them strong yet reversible and so these bonds are what uh, is actually being used to? trigger that liquid to solid transition and Um, The cool thing is that they are pH dependent, so all these um, proteins inside the vesicles are stored at low pH, so it's slightly acidic pH, Um, but then when they're secreted into seawater, which has a pH of eight, this is slightly what we call basic, these bonds can form all of a sudden, right? And so you have this really rapid um, formation of these, these metal coordination bonds, So that's what is allowing your kind of self-assembly or your your cross-linking. And then in the actual material themselves, these these bonds, because of their their nature of being strong, yet reversible, provide that high toughness that I talked about earlier. And they provide also self-healing behavior. Because if you break these bonds, um, unlike a normal covalent bond, they will reform when they're kind of brought back together, when the group is bought, brought back together. So you can kind of break it apart and then it uh, over time will recover back to its native state. You can recover your material properties. So I, I guess, I mean, you asked a lot of questions at the beginning there. I explained at least I think some of them, I hope. Um, and um, yeah, is there, was there anything I didn't uh, get there? Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, it's it's great to learn that
2: today. I mean, I guess uh, it's like uh, uh, <laughs> a check so I, I did I did make up a, my um, a hole a great hole in my knowledge that uh, there's a I mean, Mother Nature has a is very versatile in terms of uh, linking stuff. So there's forces. Um, you yep. mentioned uh, that the metal coordination. Yeah. So so maybe uh, I'll, I'll read up more on that. Uh, The awesome. chemistry and physics. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks.
7: And um that's your answer. Are you familiar I with the research? Are...
0: next? I'm I'm oh, sorry. Oh, okay.
7: Yeah,
1: I'm gonna make it real quick. So uh super cool. Uh, oh, I did um, <laughs> so I was wondering like um how does the the, the transition between like um of the, the material go between uh humi- like I guess as you go across a, a given range of humidity. Like if you have like um let's say you have like a, a blob and it's like maybe like a two-inch blob and between one end and the other end the humidity changes will the consistency of the material stay like equal or will it like kind of have phases of change and the mm, reason why that's... I asked this I, I was just like finish this real quick real quick uh the reason why I asked this is because like I think about like like wounds right um mm. if you can have something that's like more glue, like in one place and more solid in another place, you could plug a wound with like a small amount of material. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's a,
3: yeah, that's uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really uh, it's a really good point. Um, and I think, yeah, that's totally possible. So with the mistletoe, um, absolutely. I, and, and, uh, you know, what's funny about this material, is that the humidity from your skin is enough to activate the, um, the tackiness, the, the, the adhesive. So even just if it's close to in contact with your skin, it's already going to activate that um, to make it more sticky. And I, I noticed this even the first time I was playing around with it. Like when I had it in my kitchen, I, I cut one of these in half. Uh, like a fiber in half, and I and I held two ends together between my fingers, and again the humidity from my fingers was enough to activate that adhesive, so that it would that it would actually heal the two ends of the of the fiber together, so it would it would cause them to stick them together. So your point is, you know, do you have local regions of your material which might have more more moisture than uh, than another is there like a gradient going from like if it's on top of a surface that's humid to you know a uh if i understood correctly uh it, it it's you know does it does it have kind of a gradient of of properties going from you know a humid surface to to a dry uh environment i think it would for sure and and i think that might be why it, it, it does have this kind of weird behavior that it can stick on your skin. It will be flexible, but it's still quite stiff. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really interesting idea. And in terms of plugging wounds, again, we, we haven't messed around too much with that in a you know, a real context. We've just kind of been playing around with, uh, you know, whatever we can, we can find it at, at the butcher. Cause, um, you know, my student wanted to see if he could you know, heal one of his own cuts, and I said, "No, <laughs> you can't do that." Uh, but um, yeah, no, I think it's it's a really it's a really interesting question.
1: Last thing I'm gonna say, um, Matthew, super cool. Um, if cool, if it's possible, I'm gonna talk to some people. I'm in the military, and like oh. from a, a, a military perspective, if the medics that are in the field have something that can just stop the bleeding, that would save so many lives. Yeah, you know sure. what I'm saying? So yeah. um, I'm gonna talk to some people and I'm gonna add you, I'm gonna follow you actually. Um, and if I can like, put pieces together, you know what I'm saying? I'll let you know like sure. what I can figure out. Sure, yeah,
3: thanks.
0: Perfect. Um, Denise, Joyce, uh, David, Daniel, Ahmed, you uh, didn't have a chance yet to ask a good question, so flash your microphone if you want to ask something.
3: I just came pretty late. Um, I was think thinking of a uh, regenerative use. If you could use some kind of uh resin in three D printing to make molds for parts made out of other materials. And then, like you said, with water, it it, it dissolves and you can use it again. That's just uh, a lot of people have had rooms on regenerative things. So I was just thinking that that sounds pretty uh, uh, recyclable, regenerable. Mm-hmm. So so can you explain that again? So you're doing uh, on 3D printing, you want to have like a um, well, something that holds on. Well, you were talking about basically, um, Material science. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of material science. Um, think of it like a film that you print from that is yeah. the same thing as this saliva. I ah, understand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then at the later stage, when you're done with, say, you mold an aluminum, ceramic, crazy ass part with some other material. I don't yep. care. You use that mold. I just don't know the temperature ranges. Yeah. Or, yeah,
5: yeah. yeah. Or how the
3: whole thing works. So, anyway, yeah. it was just an idea. I, I said I got here late. So, sorry about yeah, that. Yeah. No worries. It's a cool idea, though. I like it.
0: Denise, uh, Daniel, uh, and Ahmed Joyce, did you have a question? Uh, Daniel.
9: Yeah. Hi. I'm uh, gonna... Yeah. Uh, enjoying a lot the conversation. I also got uh, kind of late, but uh, the the PDF uh, has a lot of very good information. Um, regarding fibers for clothing, um, uh, so I work with alpaca, and alpaca mm-hmm. has these uh, pockets of air inside the fiber. So mm-hmm. the thermal properties of uh, mm-hmm. yeah of a uh, pool um, are there because uh, it traps air in between the fibers. If yep. you add air inside the fibers, and you have more thermal protection. So to the point yep. that uh, polar bears have like almost a, like a film. I mean a, a total hole hole uh, in the core. It's mm-hmm. like a yeah. Um, are you aware of somebody doing that research, trying to come up with synthetic,
3: synthetic uh, fibers that are uh, hollow uh, inside? Uh, I'm not. I actually I didn't know too much about that. Um, that sounds really interesting. No, I don't. I don't know anybody that's um, that is working on that though. It sounds like it would be <laughs> interesting. Would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
9: I mean, alpaca fiber also is antimicrobial. I don't know exactly uh-huh. why but uh, why yeah 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 but i mean it works i mean you can use your alpaca salts for five days and not not stinky no sticky fit uh um, oh, really yeah yeah
3: <laughs> i did <laughs> not know bit. that that's really yeah.
9: cool yeah yeah um okay i awesome. need that too
0: just yeah, here really cool. for vascularization if you can come up with tubes that uh, yeah. let still some some stuff through like ions yeah. and stuff if you ever come <laughs> <laughs> like that let me know like you now for growing like 3d printing organs and stuff like yeah. doing really good vascularization that kind mm-hmm. of withstand stuff is still a tr- a problem so <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah yeah
0: but it's interesting that daniel and i have similar requests <laughs> <material>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: there we go exactly. we should collaborate more yeah alpaca that's cool i didn't know about that Ah, see, I'm learning a lot of stuff too, that's good.
0: <laughs> uh, Ahmed, uh, did you have a question?
10: Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so, uh, hello doctor, nice meeting hello. you. nice to meet you um, too. So, I'm very sorry for not catching up earlier. Um, no but uh, I have quite the question here. Uh, from what I hence so far, this is uh, material that is regenerative in nature and I guess it's a biochemical, it's not cellular, right? No, no cells. No, no. Okay. Um, so, I, I,
3: don't know, I don't know if I'd call it, well, wh- sorry, which material are you talking about? The velvet worm or? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, No, there's no cells in there. Um, and it's, I guess you could say it's regenerative in the sense that uh, basically what happens is um, you can form the fiber, then you can dissolve the fiber and then you can take... The solution of the dissolved fiber and make another fiber. So, yeah, but it's not like self-regenerative. Mm. You know, you you have to get in there and, and do the uh, the work. Yeah, sorry. All right, yeah. yeah please so
10: continue so on. so does it have? Um, I, I I think hence that it has a self-assembling features as well. Yes,
3: uh, I I think it must. E? Um, yeah, we do, we don't fully understand that yet, but it must.
10: So there's something here uh that I needed to uh, here's my question <laughs> so <laughs> I, I just wanted to to confirm the information first uh, so um in a way can we uh maybe uh, memory like have it memory shape itself like you know can it
3: shape something on its own um so you're asking can can it have it a geometric symbol into a... yeah Yeah, I mean, these tend to these tend to form fibers and fibers only, uh, as far as I know. Um, Or I mean, like, as far as we've experienced, like that, that seems to be the tendency or a gel, you know, like a big blob of gel. Um, But basically, the way you get it to form is you kind of stir up the uh, the slime and then you pull away from that. If you just stick it in and you pull it away, you don't really get a fiber actually have to have that shearing first. So it needs to be kind of activated, I think. And then you pull it. And when you pull it, you know, you're going to form a fiber. It's just kind of the nature of of that, um, you know, tensile uh, force on there. It's just going to end up as a fiber. The mistletoe system, which maybe you didn't hear about earlier, that's a system where you can form fibers or you can form films or you can, you know, do some other types of different geometries if you take some fibers and you can actually kind of weld them together with uh with using changing humidity um so i think it's not really possible to get get different shapes at the moment it's really mostly fibers so Thank you who
0: does uh slime molds i don't know matthew and ahmed if you know about slime molds that they can kind of uh, create, recreate a map of Manhattan, or yeah. make like, efficient maps from. Uh,
3: I have like, seen, seen how they stuff would like design this
0: yeah. infrastructure. That it would yeah. be better than <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just I actually saw. Uh, I was at a conference re- recently and did see some people who were using uh, fungi. Uh, and they were using it as a, li- so they were 3D printing materials that contained um, fungal spores or something like that that would then be activated, and they would start making a material within the, the 3D printed material that would then take the shape of whatever material that was. It was really neat. Um, there, it was a group in um, Switzerland at the, in Zurich um was doing this stuff but yeah I, I i don't know it's it sounds sounds really interesting though
10: i think it has to be biological in order for that to happen mm. maybe you have, have it like maybe rewarded like mm. you know maybe draw the map with uh whatever kind of media it needs to to yep. grow and it would form then uh that shape or you know exactly
3: yeah it. so so this is kind of a newer field that uh is, seems to be taking off quite a lot. They're calling it living materials. So people are 3D printing materials that have uh, fungi or bacteria, living cells that then can somehow be activated. So I, I remember seeing a paper last year where um, they 3D printed some bacteria that would respond to a certain um, stimuli, could have been light, I think. And then the, when they are stimulated by that uh, well, when they receive that stimulus, they, they're triggered to start producing a certain you know, protein or to, to have some activity that then changes the material, it changes the material's properties, or something like that. I think this is more and more. I've seen a lot of these papers in the last uh, few years, which are just, um, you know, really, really interesting, really exciting area.
0: Um, Maya, did you have a last comment yeah, or yeah, question? Yeah, I'm I, like... I, I have also a question. Uh,
7: yeah. yeah, so... Is there,
9: something, is there something that we know that um, just by the structure of the surface becomes antimicrobial? Like I'm thinking, um, shark uh, skin. Is there something on the molecular structure, not the chemical interaction, but the, the, the physical structure that makes something not... Welcome
3: to the bacteria that we know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know too much about that field. I think there are certain structures that can be antimicrobial. So I've seen like artificial structures, like uh, synthetic structures, where you have a lot of like sharp, s- small pillars at the you know nano and micro scale that that can impale the bacteria. Um, but in, yeah, biology, I don't know, to be honest, that's, again, it's kind of a little bit outside of my, uh, specialty. Um, but, um, who knows, maybe you could find a really interesting model system where, where that would be the case. Thank you. Sorry, Mark.
7: Yep. Oh, that's okay. I've just been chomping at the bit and sitting here patiently (laughs) waiting to like get my little idea out because it's okay. All right, check it out. Check it out. All right. So, so, so Dr. Harrington, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, so MIT, uh, within the last year, they came out with a hydro gel. I put it in the comments, uh, based, based on the lobster, right? So the lobster, yeah, it's pretty, super cool. But basically in essence, it's like Kevlar, but it's also, it's like tendon material. Okay. At the end of the day, the best application is tendon material but what i see with what you've got is it, i think it would be really cool for you to maybe reach out to that research team i posted it in the comments yeah
3: because
7: mm-hmm. if they got the tendon you got the sticky stuff to take the tendon to stick to the tendon and stick it to the bone that's kind of what yeah it looks like is happening right here dude you know so yeah. you know if it i sent you in the back channel a, a link to the to the paper there. I can see,
3: yeah, materials today, lobster belly, tough, stretchy, stretchy hydro. Yeah. That's interesting. I'll definitely take a look at that actually. Um, do you know what group it is by chance? I, I, for some reason I can't open it, but, uh, Um, I can follow it later
7: yeah it's I know that it's at MIT. I don't know the group. Um, I put it if you look at your back channel, your messages yeah, yeah
3: I'll find it. I'm still yeah. figuring out how Clubhouse works, but
7: <laughs> but is that is that along the right lines of thinking like basically if they got the tendon to like the stuff you're doing could be the intermediary yeah that so
3: actually I mean what's what's interesting I've been calling this this um, bissell thread um, like the fiber. I've been calling it a uh, Kevlar like but actually it's made of collagen. Collagen is what makes ten, uh, tendon, so it's actually more similar to a tendon. But actually, it has some chemical differences com- in comparison to a tendon that makes it uh, tougher than tendon and more stretchy than tendon. So I would I, now I'm definitely going to look at this paper and see how similar it is to to the properties of of what um, you know what we make. Because basically, the muscle has already combined these two things. Uh, you have a a uh, collagen tendon-like fiber that's actually embedded into this adhesive and i don't know if if you're looking at the slide, but uh on on slide four you see uh one thing we show at the at the interface i'm always really interested in these interfaces between where um the the different parts of the business actually come in contact because actually that's a really hard engineering question is how do you interface between materials that have unlike properties? Because uh, there's this effect called modulus mismatch, which basically tells you that if you have two materials that have very different stiffness um, properties, um, you, you tend to have stress and force concentrations at that interface, which is often where you have failure. Um, you know, you can think of like delamination of uh, or like, I don't know, you can think, I'm trying to think of a good example that everybody knows, but basically, you know, whenever you have materials that have dissimilar properties, like, like also, you know, your tendon bone interface, like you mentioned, or uh, interface between a, an implant material uh, in your bone or an implant material that you put in your body and, and some soft tissue, you can get a lot of damage there. And so it's always really interesting to look at how nature solves that problem how nature deals with um, these, these, uh, these challenges. And a lot of times what they do is they use what are called gradients. So they actually will have a compositional or structural gradient that then leads to a mechanical gradient. And in that way you really avoid that interface entirely because you just gradually transition from a really stiff material to a really soft material. And that's kind of what's happening Uh, all along the whole, the whole fiber here, especially at the interface between the adhesive uh, and the, um, the tendon like fiber material. So I think I definitely see where you're coming from on that. It's a really cool idea. Um, And I definitely will check out that paper to see, see what they're up to. But, um, you know, the muscle has kind of already has an answer maybe for that question. We just haven't like looked at it close enough yet. In the sense that you're you're combining um, the um, you have an interface between these already you know if that makes sense
7: yeah yeah I do I I worked with that I saw like the different materials and using the muscle uh, adhesive that Dr John Wilkerson sent me I was trying to fiddle yeah. around with it you know I know exactly yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I know exactly what you're talking
5: about yeah, yeah. match
7: that but I think like that tendon stuff that MIT has and your stuff with the muscles maybe you guys could figure out all the way to the bone because that's yeah. that's that's the hard part the connection right.
3: Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they, like I said, these interfaces are, are one of the biggest challenges. So one of the areas where this is hugely challenging, um, that's becoming more and more, I don't know, prominence, um, is our brain computer interfaces. I mean, uh, this is probably something we'll see develop in our lifetimes. Um, I know that, you know, there's that company Neuralink that's, that's trying to do something like this, but then again, uh, you have a very hard um, computer material, like a semiconductor that's coming in contact with one of the softest materials, you know, human brain. Um, and really, one of the big challenges there is not like an electronics question or, or anything like that, but rather just the material science question. When you have that interface between a soft and a hard material this is the biggest challenge so actually i think there's a lot of areas uh which are biomedically relevant where by solving that question or by looking at how nature solves that question we can gain some insights uh into you know how how biomedical engineers might also solve it yep
0: yeah thank you by the way
3: a a
2: quick comment this this discussion is uh, uh very interesting so the by the way you mentioned the uh, nature, you uh, know, uh, bio uh, system solving the uh, modulus mismatching problem by generating self-gen somehow like a gradient. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a quite a quite a intriguing. I hope, you know, there will be more um, uh, literature on about But uh, I, I might, you know, contact you later because I have uh, uh, some of my own work actually addressed this uh, similar problems with uh, 3D printing. By ah, treating the cool. surface of uh, different, uh, say, uh, hydrophobic, hydrophilic uh, surfaces, mm-hmm. by say, just, 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 you know, factory-like, uh, 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 common, like surface treatment, uh, and say, plasma and others, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and I can actually, I mean, the, by engineering, we we are able to uh, build that into, you know, uh, regular 3D printers, so that it, you can actually have, uh, say, uh, PP uh, no, <laughs> and other uh, mm-hmm. uh, hydrophilic uh, PLA mm-hmm. uh, polymers. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They came together. Yeah. Just quickly adding that. Yeah. Uh, very so cool. cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Katerina. Oh yeah. Thank you. No, I wanted to, uh, you know, give Matthew a chance to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah. It's
0: getting late here. Yeah, I
5: appreciate uh, it. I
0: think we're in the same time zone. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're probably exhausted you talked for like almost two hours yeah
3: yeah <laughs> no it's maybe hard. you'll was,
0: come back uh, it was a
3: pleasure it was really really a great experience and I, I really appreciated all the great questions and uh just the opportunity to to chat with everyone about this it was really cool
0: yeah no we enjoyed it a lot and it was really interesting and let's stay in touch everyone <laughs> I want to no, but it would be really interesting to follow your research more. Cool. And what comes out of your sabbatical? From, yes. From doing like really exploring, going back to the roots of biology and exploring like. This is
3: this is what I'm hoping for. Yeah, and and come up with a few few new cool ideas that'll that'll keep me going, keep me interested. Yeah. Uh, congrats. Sounds great. You have
0: that opportunity and. Maybe you can you can take us along, and come sometimes here and tell. Us.
3: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Fantastic.
0: Okay. um right. Thank everyone also for asking questions, and thank you, Matthew. Have a great night. And uh, we have a room tomorrow uh, with Dr. Onnen uh, from MIT, and he will be talking about this artificial neurons. That are around 10,000 times faster than regular brain neurons. So mm-hmm. let's see how he managed to do that tomorrow. <laughs> okay. okay.
3: See you later. Thank you. Bye.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much.
3: Thank Bye, you. everyone. Thank you, Matthew and Katarina. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: We'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.
3: Bye.